There are at least 50,000 Jewish children, as well as many thousands of Christian children, who must be brought out of Germany as soon as the money is available to transport them and feed, clothe, house, and educate them until they are ready for emigration to countries of settlement all over the world. In our last episode, we heard how Parliament agreed to ease restrictions on immigration, allowing unaccompanied children to come to Britain with a few provisions. Several different organizations took on board the challenge of trying to rescue Jewish children under this new policy, most notably the Movement for the Care of Children in Germany, later known as the Refugee Children's Movement. Now, I can't even begin to imagine the levels upon levels of planning that needed to be undertaken. But in addition to the complicated logistics, there was a particularly pressing matter for the organizers. Raising money. The British government wasn't going to provide funding. It required that the Jewish community, along with the Quakers and others who had advocated for the new policy in the first place, would be responsible for securing the funds to guarantee that refugee children did not become a financial burden. Although the government wasn't in any official way helping to fund this operation, the then former Prime Minister, Lord Stanley Baldwin, agreed to lend his name to an appeal effort. On the 8th of December, 1938, he launched this appeal with a special 15-minute national radio broadcast on the BBC. Schemes have already been begun for receiving and caring for the children in hostels or in private homes in many parts of the country. The number who can be admitted into this country must chiefly depend upon the extent to which hospitality can be offered. But the committee which is attending to this part of the work will require very large funds to maintain the children on arrival and to arrange for their training in agricultural, industrial, or domestic employments. Was the radio appeal effective? By the summer of 1939, the Lord Baldwin Fund had raised over 500,000 pounds, the equivalent of nearly 33 million pounds today. Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maus. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies from more than 250 Jewish refugees from Nazism, to shed light on one particular strand of the refugee experience, the Kinder Transport. You can learn more about the Refugee Voices Archive and find bonus content for each episode of this podcast at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 4, First Impressions. 
In December 1938, Trudy Goldberg was eight years old. And then I remember everything being so strange. It was bitter cold. And I'd never been in a house before. We lived in a flat and friends lived in a flat. And uh, the house, when we went on holiday, this chateau or whatever, but was more of a bungalow. Never been in a house. And uh, all I remember is being so cold because, uh, well, in those days, nobody had any heating in the bedroom. So, with the money coming in, and with various charities and volunteers identifying suitable foster accommodations, before long, the child refugees began to arrive in Britain. As we heard in episode one, children commonly traveled by train, then boat, then upon arrival in Britain, another train, often to Liverpool Street Station in London. Then they would have been collected, maybe by a foster parent or some other kind of sponsoring agency, and brought somewhere else, hopefully to a home, but not always. It could have been anywhere in the country. And so the question I can't help but wonder about, that I want us to focus on in this episode, is then what happened? Here's Trudy Goldberg again. It was a bitter cold winter, and uh, I never slept in a bed with blankets. We all had feather beds, like the duvets now, which, I mean, it's, it's such a little thing, but when you're a child, it's, uh, it's strange. Uh, I remember being bitter cold, and then I started crying. And uh, I think I cried for a week. They didn't know what to do with me. I remember crying for a taschentuch. You know what a taschentuch is? It's a handkerchief. Because there were no paper handkerchiefs in those days. And the more I wanted a taschentuch, the more I needed one. (laughs) But we survived. I asked Dr. Anthony Grenville, co-founder of the Refugee Voices Archive, about the challenges that the child refugees would have faced in adapting to their new environment. I mean, generally, and that was also, of course, a very, very difficult moment because they were put in the charge of strangers. You know, people who, however loving they turned out to be, were not their parents, were, you know, English people with whom they probably could barely communicate. They were in a strange family, very often, because they were cherished and loved, and uh, many of them, I know, regarded the children of their foster families as effectively brothers and sisters. That was by no means the case for all. Some came across families who were cold and heartless, exploited them, even, I'm sorry to say, sexually exploited young, young girls. There's no doubt that there were such cases, though I think few. Then, of course, there was the language barrier. I've trawled through the Refugee Voices archive, listening to varying accounts of the first impressions that our child refugees formed upon arrival in Britain. These stories are tinged with a lot of obvious homesickness, as we just heard from Trudy Goldberg, mixed with culture shock. 
It's curious what sorts of cultural differences these young children picked up on and what sticks in their minds so many years later. It's also not just what differences they noticed, it's how those differences made them feel. Here's Arnold Weinberg. Some were not very nice. For instance, in Germany, everything was nice, spick and span and clean. I came into England, I see the children wallowing on the, on the road in the, in the dirt. It did not make a nice impression or a good impression on me. But I must say, I was very well treated. The people were all very friendly. And it was very nice to come here. And it was a relief to be able to be free or not having any fear of anything might happen to like any other human being to be here, which was not the case in Germany. Here's Otto Deutsch. Now, it wasn't the White Cliffs of Dover that greeted us. It was the Parkstone Key in Harwich. I was, you know, the emotions I had were mixed, sad, bewildered, bemused, I think is the word. And here I was in England. I heard a language which, uh, could how can people speak a language like that? <laughs> and uh, it was strange, so strange. Even... People were dressed different. I, we had the first. <laughs> what a wonderful welcome. The cup of tea. We drink different tea to what you drank here in England. We have lemon tea. Drunk of tea. And some sort of a bun, I don't know. Chelsea bun, but I don't know. Food comes up a lot. Perhaps not surprisingly. These were children from some of the great cities of continental Europe, confronted with mid-20th century British cuisine. Ugh. You can imagine it would have made an impression. Here's Fanny Bogdanoff. Well, I, I tell you what was the first thing that I noticed. <laughs> the different way in which Mrs. Clement cooked her vegetables from the way my mother cooked them. <laughs> That was the first thing I noticed. My mother always cooked a variety of vegetables, and Mrs. Clement felt cabbage was very good for you, so we had cabbage every day. <laughs> I'm sure she was right, but I just noticed it because it was different from what my mother had done, you see. <laughs> Literally minutes after being collected at Liverpool Street Station, Ruth Jackson encountered something she'd never seen before the ice cream man. On the way there, we passed a bicycle, a man pedaling a bicycle with a funny box in the front. And Mr. Saunders said to me, um, would you like one? And I said, like what? He said, shall we see? And I said, I didn't really understand what he wanted. Anyway, he stopped the car, he stopped the man with a bicycle, and out came my first ever um, chalk eyes, walls, chalk eyes, and it's, he said, look what it says on the side, stop me and buy one. So that was my first impression. Here's Bessie Barnett. Oh, first of all, we, we come to these little sandwiches, you know. They, they, you know, they made these little sandwiches like you have in a party, cut all the crusts off and they, 
and, and tea, of course, we didn't know what tea was. We, tea, we used to drink black tea. Tea, that's a common topic we hear a lot about in the testimonies. The children definitely did not tend to like milky British tea at first, or porridge. Stefan Ruff, however, developed a liking for something quite exotic, margarine. I can still remember this wonderful stuff I discovered. Uh, it came on bread. It was rock solid and yellow. I'd never tasted anything like it before. Margarine. Uh, I mean, in Vienna, margarine was what the poor ate, you know. Everybody else ate butter. <laughs> and if you've eaten Austrian butter, if you, if you ever eaten Austrian butter, which even now, we go to Austria, my wife says, we must bring back some butter because we can't get anything like it in England. Here's Alice Rubenstein remembering her first day in Britain. I mean, they were very nice people, but the first day, we were having tea. And I cut up the lettuce, and I was told you don't eat lettuce cut up. You eat it, it was London lettuce, you eat it with your hands. So I got tears in my eyes, and that was my first day. I don't want to... It's not, I should, I should imagine it isn't as easy to take on another child when you've got three. But they saved my life. They were very good people. But maybe it was homesickness. I don't know. Again, more talk of food. But listening to Alice's recollection, I can't help but feel that her sadness isn't really about being told off about how she cut her lettuce. As with lots of these testimonies, you can almost hear the internal negotiation at play. There's such a mix of emotions. Excitement mixed with loneliness, mixed with relief, mixed with guilt, mixed with gratitude, mixed with bemusement. It's not for us to try to get inside the psychology of these refugees that wouldn't be appropriate. But broadly speaking, these are children who have just said goodbye to their families. Some believe they would see them again. Some, they say it in the testimonies, they just knew somehow that they wouldn't. Then they took a harrowing journey, loads of stories of children being seasick for the entire passage from Holland to Britain. Then they find themselves alone in a new home, a new culture, with a new language. This is a lot for a child to deal with. I think it's fair to say that we're listening to a range of people in a range of different ways processing trauma. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. This isn't a story of the wholesale emotional neglect of thousands of refugee children. Many of the children have enduring memories of amazingly warm receptions, of the thrill and wonder of being in a new country as if it were an adventure, of the sense of reprieve 
for not having to live in daily fear. Here is Harry Weinberger. My first visit to English cinema was amazing. A cinema organ, halfway between the two main programs, the cinema organ came up from, from the floor and the uh, words appeared on the screen and people sang along with the uh, cinema organ. I'd never seen anything like this before and I thought I'd landed in a lunatic asylum. It was the strangest thing that I'd seen. And here is Leslie Brent. Well, it was all very strange. We were, we were driven in double-decker buses, which I'd never seen before. And the, the English police were kind and helpful, and, uh, which was something totally foreign to us, um, because we were fearful of the German police. Uh, yes, it was just utterly different. Here's Fanny Bogdanoff. You may recall her in the previous episode proclaiming Great Britain to be the greatest country in the whole world. Her experience with the family that took her in may help to explain why. And when the train arrived at Piccadilly Station, Mr. Clement was waiting there for me and then took me home on the bus to Horton Green and they'd prepared a lovely room for me. A lovely room all to myself. It was so wonderful suddenly to have a lovely bedroom of my own. <laughs> they were an absolutely wonderful family, Mr. and Mrs. Kemp. They were a Quaker family. But they made no attempt to convert me far from it. For the Jewish high holidays, for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Passover, they always sent me to Jewish families in North Manchester. And here is Marion Lesser. I went into a very English family who, had, who were extremely kind to me, better to me than their own children, I think. But I'd never seen such a life before. They, they were laborers, farm laborers, and uh, they were vegetarians, and they used to eat a lot of potatoes and... Uh, parsnips and turnips and a lump of cheese with it, which was totally alien to me. So occasionally they killed a chicken and cooked it for me, but uh, they were very good to me. People from all walks of life responded to the call to house Jewish refugee children. This part of the kinder transport story is something that Britain remains rightfully proud of. In many circumstances, the children found themselves in nurturing and loving homes. There were some others where the motivations of the foster parents weren't entirely benevolent. We'll get into this more in future episodes. And then there were lots of situations somewhere in the middle. 
It wasn't a matter of bad intentions, but just, well, there is no instruction manual for how to care for a traumatized refugee child. By now, at the end of the fourth episode of this podcast, I suspect you're getting the point. The Kinder Transport was not a straightforward historical episode of good triumphing over evil, of right over wrong. The Kinder Transport was complicated. Morally complicated, yes, and also messy in lots of other ways. We're at the point in our story where the Kinder Transport journey fragments and takes us in lots of different directions all at the same time. In addition to those children who lived in foster homes, we'll learn about those who spent their winter in British holiday camps, those who lived in hostels, those who were put to work on farms and as domestic servants, even those who were interned, yeah, you heard that right, as enemy aliens. It's going to get really complex and, I think, really interesting. This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, for her support, and to Dr. Anthony Grenville for his contribution to this episode. Miriam Silverman is our researcher, post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about the stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help us spread the word about it on social media and in real life. And we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.